everybody. And uh, for those that are visiting, we're 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 in a uh, we're in Romans chapter two, and we've been there for uh, what has been a very long time. So, and I'm sure we're going to move along, but uh, but we're glad to have you. But we're jumping right into Romans two, four, and five this morning for the third pass, I think. So. And I would like to just open up with a couple thoughts. One, um, uh, I never know where the music's going, uh, but just taking this study and then taking the music this morning and just treasure up the way our Lord just works so beautifully uh, in the midst of his people. I, I want to open up a couple of ways this morning, and I'll I'll pray somewhere in the course of the study this morning, um, but just to kind of refresh our minds with the text that we're in, I'd, I'd like to read Romans 2, 4, and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, a completely changed way of thinking about God and about our sin, because it is a proper thinking of God that helps us see our sin properly. It's just that simple. Um, Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, which is the ultimate expression of his forbearance and his patience, right? And I, as I was preparing this study the last couple of weeks and working through it, I couldn't help but think about the importance of taking a, to, to close out, particularly verse 5, in this day of wrath, um, I'd like to take us back to the very beginning where you see the the expression of God's kindness in a very uh, subtle way. If you go with me to Genesis 3.15, you know this passage well, but it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, speaking directly to Satan, is this passage, directly to Satan. Keep that in mind. He shall bruise your head, which is a fatal wound to the head, and you shall bruise his head heal. And it is so important that we, we understand that, that this projects the full sweep of God's redemptive work, the entire sweep of God's redemptive work, which we're going to try to work our way through this morning. And I'd like to just pick up from where we were two weeks ago where we kind of stopped at 2 Peter 2.9, and I want to read this passage to you, 2 Peter 2.9. And our focus is really that day of wrath and the storing up that we're doing right now outside of Christ, which reveals the wrath of God all around us, which is amazingly not thought through. Because the wrath of God all around us is the supreme expression of God's mercy. Because the wrath we see around us is temporal. The wrath we see the day we die, or our loved ones that don't know the Lord, is eternal. And the wrath we see around us should be the means by which we see the wrath of God temporally in order to avoid the wrath of God eternally. It is a beautiful place to witness from, right? Peter says this in 2 Peter 2.9, Then the Lord knows 
how to rescue the godly from trials. And I can say amen to that. And I know you can too. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble, tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Right? There's a picture right, of this passage from Paul and this unpacking that we see all throughout God's redemptive history. I was struck this morning uh, by Genesis 18, verse 25. If you don't mind, I'll read it. You can go there with me. I think you know this scene well. This is Abraham, Abram, really, at this point. Abraham really pleading with God because God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. The very same things Peter just alluded to, right? He's going to judge. Abraham is trying to address, and I'm sure his lot is, is in his mind and his family. And this takes place, verse 24. Suppose that there are 50 righteous within the city. Just 50, right? Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it? For the 50 righteous who are in it, and you see this response, verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. So Abraham is really defending God in this, this way. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but I think my throat would have a big knot in it if I was talking to the Lord that way, right? It's a little bit like Job and his friends before the, the 70 question smackdown occurred of Romans 2. One through three. Who are you, O oh man? Right? We do. That, that's the point. That, that, I think, is what we have to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to stir ourselves up to the things that are sneaking into our life and are right here and are offensive to God and his holiness. And this is why the holiness of God is so important to produce the humility that we should have, right, in, uh, to your very point. But look at, look at the condescension of our Lord. Look at verse 26. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. There is the kindness and forbearance and patience of our God, uncomprehended. Because we know what Sodom and Gomorrah were like. We know what they wanted to do. Even after they were blinded, they groped at the doors because of the insatiable desire that had been put in them from Romans 1, 18 through 32. Remember that insatiable desire we talk so much about? That's what was going on. And who was living in the midst of that? Lot and his family. And just like in Noah's time, God went into that city. The Lord went into that city, and he pulled Lot and his family out, and he smoked the whole Twin Cities. Right? I thought this morning, as we parent and grandparent, look at the influence that city had on Lot's daughters. Read on if you wonder what I mean. But here you see this forbearance and patience of God. Now, I want to introduce a theme 
through this next part of the study. Because part I want you to see by the end of this study is that God's eternal plan all along was to exalt the second Adam. To give the first Adam every opportunity to honor the Lord. To give Israel every opportunity to honor the Lord. To give the church every opportunity to honor the Lord. And to find only one who would. And who was it? It was our Lord. I think you'll see that very clearly in Scripture. And I think this serves as part of the warning, James, you're bringing out. We had better be warned. And if we're not, we're not reading the Scriptures about the constant effort to take the believer and destroy their testimony. Destroy it. This was the first test of the first Adam, Genesis 1.28. And I'll just kind of work through these so we can try to get this uh, study closed out. Genesis 1.28. Here you see God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And these are all commandments to the first Adam. Right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and look at this, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And that would be everything, wouldn't it? Subdue it. Have dominion over it. He gave Adam, the first Adam, the responsibility. And what did he do? Didn't take long at all, did it? So, Adam falls. We fall. Uh, go to Genesis uh, 2.15. And we see the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Eat, which means what did not Adam know before they sinned? What did they not know? Evil. They only knew good. Could you imagine? You look like you've lived a, a few days, right? Could you imagine only having known good your entire life? That was the proposition. They only knew good. And the warning, you shall not eat. The only prohibition in that garden was not to eat so that you would continue to only know good because the minute they ate, they violated God's commandments and they immediately knew evil because that was the evil. That was the evil, right? For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And there's a whole week's study right there of what that death means. Let's go to Abraham. And I want you to see the testing that God is doing, the test of Abraham, Genesis 22, 1 through 2. Here's a faithful, positive response to the test. After these things, God tested Abraham, Genesis 22, 1 and 2, and said to him, Abraham, and he said, I love this, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And we all know that that test of Abraham was responded with the faith of Abraham that said, you made a promise, and I know you will keep it. And if you take my son, my beloved son, you will return him because you made a promise that through him, the line of the promise from Genesis 3.15. You, 
please, when you study your scripture, tie these things together. It is precious when the Spirit of God illumines them to your heart and to your mind. Because God is unfolding just an unbelievably glorious plan. Let's look at the test of Israel, which comes from the negative often. The test of Israel, Deuteronomy 8.2 says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might, what? Humble you. This is the purpose of God's testing. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, Did God not know? Or did he test them to make sure they knew? Why do we take a test? To see if we pass or fail. To see if we knew the content. To see if we knew the instructions of what the teacher is trying to teach us. Deuteronomy 13.3 You shall not listen to the words of the, that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. Now, if there is ever an ancient passage from the scriptures that is more relevant today than this, I don't know what it is. Because the, the stunning subtlety of false religion and false teachers who are teaching and preaching dreams of man that have nothing to do with God. Matter of fact, when you look at them carefully, they are in direct opposition to what God says. But yet, droves of people follow these false doctrines. It's fearful. And here it is, all the way back in Deuteronomy. These dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. And what is he testing? Do you believe me or do you believe what you hear? And this is where we find what he's telling us to believe. This is the means by which we have been given to understand all of this wickedness that is going on around us. God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, your mind, your body, your heart. Look at the New Testament, Romans 12.1, and the testing of the church. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, based on the previous 11 chapters of pure theology that we will hopefully get to through, <laughs> right? That's what he's saying. I appeal to you based on everything you've heard from God in the previous portion of this letter. By the mercies of God, I think he had Romans 2, 4, and 5 in his mind. Do you presume upon the goodness and the forbearance and the patience of God. By the mercies of God, the fact that he's allowed us to live to this very day, right? By the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Same commandment as Deuteronomy, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, same message of the dreamers of dreamers, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, being constant in the word of God, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And boy, does he not test us. Has he tested you this week, sister? Yeah, me too. And sometimes it's heavy. And, and the answer is always the same, isn't it? Just look up. Set your mind on things that are above. Because this place is going to hell in a handbasket. Is really the message. What is good and acceptable and perfect. 
And I want to throw you back to the psalm, Psalm 7, and here you see the entirety of humanity. This is just such a wonderfully fearful passage. Psalm 7, verse 8. And here you have a foreshadowing. The Lord judges the people. You see this reverberating judgment of God that is all pointing us to that final day of the Lord that we're going to get to. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. And you always hear Paul, don't you, when you read that psalm? Wait a minute, I thought it was not my righteousness. So to what righteousness is this psalmist referring to? The promise of Genesis 3.15, the sacrifice of the Levitical system that would cover our sin and declare us righteous just like Abraham. That is the only way a true believer can speak of righteousness. It is an external righteousness that is imputed upon us, into us, and for us, so that there is now no condemnation. Right? Thank God for that. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is within me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked one come to an end, and it will. And may you establish the righteous. And here it is. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Now, there's a little bit of a problem with some of the evangelism that goes on today. If we have a God who is feeling indignation every day, I think we had better be careful with some of the ways we present God to people who are squarely under his judgment. Because it is, think about the Proverbs. It is the fear of the Lord. And for the unsaved, the fear of the Lord is the fear of this judgment that we're reading about right now. Speaking the love in truth is lost today. It's lost. And I, I don't know about you, but witnessing into those people can be some of the most difficult witnessing you will ever do. Because they will literally express, well, that is not the God that I believe in. That's not the God I was taught. This is not that God, right? Satan's perfect plan to create a God of your own making. But this is the God who tests the minds and the hearts. O righteous God, verse 10, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, and there it is, God will wet his sword. He has bent and ready his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Remember how we've talked about how sin is just pregnant with more sin? It just keeps, keeps creating more and more sin, right? He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made, this wicked man. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his skull, his violence descends. Very graphic language, but look where the psalmist goes in verse 17. I will give to the Lord... The thanks due to his righteousness. And there it is. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Now, I want to bring us back to 2 Peter. Look at 2 Peter 3, verse 8 through 10. And what we're doing is we're just walking you along this Day of the Lord. What is it? When is it? How do we find it? How do we understand it? 
Peter gives us a wondrous picture, and this whole section of Peter is wonderful, but we're just going to read verse 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And here comes this fearful but. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The constant warning of the day of the Lord. Let me just pray for us in this thought. Father, we are so thankful that in your eternal decrees, as we will unfold this morning, you have purposed every single thing that has come to pass. The sin that has come into the world, though not the author of it, you are the sovereign over it. And Father, you had one beautiful purpose. And that is to exalt your son, the second Adam. as the Redeemer, as the Lamb, as the Savior, as the King, as the Comforter, as the Warrior, and the Supreme Conqueror of all that is set against you. And we can see that fulfillment through your scriptures. And we just praise you for the condescension to show it and to teach it to us. And we just pray that anyone who comes to an understanding of this day that is coming would flee to you and your righteousness so that there would be no more condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, the exalted one. And so we praise you for this, Father. We praise you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Enduring everything that we deserved so that we could be free. And we praise you, Spirit, for illumining our hearts and minds as we treasure up the scriptures in our hearts and lives. And we just praise you now in your precious name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so if you know your book of Revelation well, you know that in Revelation 14, the world is in a state that is quite hard to fathom. The, the sheer mass of death is almost uncomprehensible. The disruption to the planet, the disruption to the universe, the the disruption to everything is at its fever pitch. Right in the middle of the beginning of the day of wrath, 
And in Revelation 14.6, you find the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience with a humanity that is doing two things most prominently, slaughtering every single professing Christian as instantly as they can and shaking their fist at God with a hard and impenitent heart. And yet, this is what our gracious God is doing. Revelation 14, 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. <laughs> That's our merciful God in the midst of the most vile hatred. And this is second only to the display of the sacrifice of his son. Right? This is what it took. You putting my son on a cross. But in my eternal decrees, me sacrificing the spotless lamb for you. I want to help you think about a couple things. Let me read Revelation 19, 19 through 21. And what you have in this passage is the judgment that occurs at the end of the tribulation period. I want you to look at some of the language that describes this day by John through the revelation of our Lord. Verse 19 says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the opening of the final day of judgment. And what's interesting is this judgment seems to span, as Peter said, a thousand years. Now think about that. But there's something in between that I want to endear your heart with. As believers, look at Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice in a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals and thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. <laughs> Enjoy the music this morning, y'all. Right, brother? Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He has complete dominion, just as the first Adam was commanded and failed. The second Adam fulfilled all of it. You see the picture? That's the picture. It's Christ exalted by the Father. And this is just beautiful. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, the righteousness of Christ that gave us our clothes to be the bride. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And that blessed time will span a thousand years. I appreciated what Dr. MacArthur said on this verse 7 in particular. Hebrew weddings consisted of three phases. The betrothal, often when the couples were children. Presentation, the festivities often lasting several days that preceded the ceremony. And three, the ceremony, the exchanging of the vows. The church was betrothed to Christ by his sovereign choice in eternity's past and will be presented to him at the rapture. The final supper will signify the end of the ceremony. The symbolic meal will take place at the establishment of the millennial kingdom and last throughout the thousand-year period. And you will see that if you look at the passages that, that particularly Isaiah speaks about, about just the glorious communion we have with the Lord and the saints during this period. It ultimately expands to include all the redeemed of all ages, which comes clear in the remainder of the book. Now I want to take you to that other end of the thousand years, the day of the Lord. Look at Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and whom, him who was seated on it. From his, presence, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Remember how they tried to hide in the rocks in the first wave of this judgment during the tribulation period? There's no place to hide at this judgment. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. It was interesting to me. The dead is mentioned, I think, five times in this section. The dead, the dead, the dead. But they're standing before the throne. Right? Alive in Christ. Dead in our trespasses. That's what this is. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. And listen to this. According to what they had Done every single thing was in the book. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, and again, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this, dear brothers and sisters, is the most fearful death. Because this is the death that never dies. This is the death that never dies, but you long for every moment of the rest of your eternity that you could die from it. That's the point. This is not hyperbole from God. This is the absolute truth. This is the absolute destiny of every unsaved person we know and love. And if it doesn't, um, 
shake your soul and bring you to plead with God to be a faithful witness to those we love so dearly. I don't know what will. If it doesn't, then you don't believe these words. You don't believe what it's saying and you don't believe what it is teaching. You've just somehow tuned it out, right? This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is precisely what our Lord teaches in Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats, with the accounting of everything that they had done. And it's interesting that you see very clearly from Hebrews 10, if you look at 26 through 29, you see that there are degrees of hell, and it is based on what is written in those books and everything that has been said and done. Just like the believer, there are degrees of heaven that we can't fully understand because to be in heaven is to have everything you could ever imagine. But it is very clear that there is a clear indication from Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 that we will too be accountable for everything we say and do as believers. And it has an eternal impact of our time in heaven. And don't lose sight of the fact that to be in heaven is to be in heaven. But I want to bring it up, and I want to glorify our Lord, and I want to show where this is all going. Look at 21, Revelation 21, verse 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There's the full redemptive work of God through Christ right there. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Remember what happened in Genesis 4? They're undoing it right here. Adam and Eve dwelt with God. We dwell with the Spirit of God. But they're going to unlock those gates from Genesis 4, the end of Genesis 3. It's just beautiful. This is cover to cover of the Bible. And then verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, the revelation, right, brother? Said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning from the end. You want to know why I've purposed all this over the course of humanity to exalt my beloved son as the second Adam who would conquer and be the victor and do everything the father called on him to do perfectly because we cannot. And worse than that, we will not <laughs> in so many ways. But yet... You're covered in his righteousness. And God says, not guilty, sister. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I watched a sermon three, six days ago where the preacher stood up and said, do you know Jesus breaks the law? That, you, you see, I'll, I mean, I, I saw that. I, and trust me, I fell out of my, he was dead serious. And what he was doing is condoning what God condemns so that people will be left perfectly comfortable in their sin. That's the deception. It's the exact same thing. That's right. Right. Have to. You can't take a holy God and let him be holy, right? And you can't elevate a sinful man unless you bring that holy God down to our level. And that's precisely what is rampant, right? So that you can be like God. Where does that come from? Genesis 3. You see how consistent this message is? Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Now, I want to take you to end. Verse, go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. And I want to show you the most beautiful word picture of everything we've just described. 1 Corinthians 15 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, says Paul. He loved his facts. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the believers. For as by a man came death, who was that? Adam. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. The dead. The same dead from Revelation. The dead. The dead, the dead, the dead. Right? Came life, Jesus, who was the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Ultimately, in the end, after the dead have been removed. The final judgment at the white throne. Of course, this passage is used often to justify universalism, but you have to throw out the rest of the Bible to do it. Christ, the first fruits, then is, I'm sorry. For as in Adam all die, verse 22, so also in Christ shall be made alive, verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, and here we are all the way out here to the new creation, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Here is the consummation of all of God's redemptive work right here. What's he doing? The kingdom is now complete. All are redeemed. The dead have been put away. And what's he doing? What's the Lord doing? He's returning it all to the Father. Now, listen to the way Paul unpacks that point. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So 24 and verse 25, Paul is showing in 24 where it ends, verse 25, how he gets there. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet to exalt the Son. When, but when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Now, verse 28 is what I want you to see and we'll close. When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. The exaltation of Christ. You see it? Isn't it beautiful? This is the intimacy of our 
blessed triune God who didn't need us at all, but used all of our sinfulness to exalt the Son in the most glorious of ways. And then look at what it says, that God may be all in all, as if to say, until this consummation was complete, in a very kind of human kind of way, God was incomplete, which we know is not um, <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? But in a sense, until the work of redemption was complete and all things have been subjected to the Son, the triune God is not complete because they haven't completed the work they have been doing from the beginning of humanity. But this is the time it's complete. And Paul says that God may be all and all. So we beautifully see our thrice holy God reigning supreme without any enemies, without any challenge, without any sin, but with his beautiful creation that has been made all anew. That's where they're taking the believers. That's where they're taking all of humanity whose faith in God was counted as righteousness, Christ's righteousness. And it all culminates through the day of the Lord and spans a thousand years. And now we'll move on from Romans 2, 4, and 5, which is a, the entire section from Romans 1, 18 through Romans 3, 20, is really the indictment of humanity. And it is the closed case so that every mouth may be shut, says Romans 3, 20, right? Paul is now going to take us from Romans 2, 6, all the way into Romans 3, and he is going to basically justify his condemnation of every human being, and that's where we're going to go next week, Lord willing. Thank you, guys. <laughs>